This is Bob Morris in Desert Horticulture. Today I'd like to talk to you about why a limb might die in Desert Willow, different things you can do to soil mixes, and differences in managing a Palo Verde versus a Crepe Myrtle. All this and more on today's Desert Horticulture. A question I received asked, I had a two-year-old Desert Willow that had one branch which died. What could cause this? I have never heard of a Desert Willow uh, losing a branch. So I had to look around on the internet. I did know that borers typically are not a problem on desert willow, so I kind of ruled that out, but I was still curious. One website that I found did mention, that was the University of California's Integrated Pest Management site. They did inform me that desert willow does at time get a disease called verticillium wilt. And verticillium wilt could be a problem in this particular case. And uh, it's a soil-borne disease organism. It's a disease organism that can result from uh, unprotected uh, cutting, not sanitizing the equipment before cutting, before pruning. It can be transferred. This disease can be transferred from the soil upwards through the tree itself and it also can be transferred on pruning equipment so you have to be careful when you're doing any kind of pruning on desert willow in this particular case what i would do since uh, your pruning equipment is to disinfect your pruning equipment first make the cut whether it's with a saw or lopper or a hand shears remove it and then sanitize your equipment again in preparation for another cut. This single cut will remove the, if it is infected, the verticillium infected. So when you're looking at it, you're looking at the branch that's been infected. You see that it's dead. If it's dead all the way down to the trunk, then the disease organism possibly could be in the trunk. You could have a problem with this disease organism in the entire tree <clears throat> but if it's only kills the the branch partially then you'll make the cut about 12 inches towards the trunk downhill downstream <clears throat> of this disease uh, and hopefully you've captured it with a sanitized lopper you've removed the infection and you can then dispose of it uh, and uh, sanitize your equipment again. <clears throat> so the idea is, if this is verticillium wilt on desert willow, is to remove it using a sanitized saw, lopper, or hand shears, whatever it is. The usual, what I usually use for sanitizing is alcohol, either alcohol wipes or an alcohol spray, the isopropyl alcohol. 70% sprayed directly on it should disinfect uh, any of the pruning equipment. So when you get your pruning equipment out, you'll sanitize, adjust it, getting ready for the cut. You don't want to tear anything, so you'll make sure that it's adjusted properly. You'll make sure it's sharp, again, because you don't want to tear anything. Uh, when during the cut, <clears throat> you want to make a clean cut and then sanitize the equipment. Verticillium wilt is a possibility. Borers typically are not a possibility on desert willow. It is possible to spread this disease, as I said, on pruning equipment. So whoever 
did the pruning prior to this. It's possible it could be on those uh, pruning shears or loppers. So typically disinfect and then make your pruning cut. Next question, should I add anything extra to my raised beds I use for growing vegetables? If your raised bed has a soil mix in it that's been used several years and you've been cropping out of it, you've been taking stuff out of it, it's always good to amend that soil uh, again with compost, a good quality compost before growing again. I usually recommend putting about a one inch layer of compost on top of the raised bed and then digging it into the soil, either rototilling it or digging it in with a hand shovel. Double digging is preferred. <clears throat> it does a better job of mixing the soil. If your compost level is low, you'll have a hard time getting a garden trowel into that soil. It'll be more compact. If the soil is in good condition, it has enough compost in it. And this doesn't substitute, none of this substitutes for a soil test, a chemical soil test, but generally speaking, if you, those are those can be costly unless you have a, a state laboratory that provides that kind of service for you from your agricultural university. Uh, some states still have that, but usually sending it to a soil testing laboratory for an analysis um, is will run you $75 about for each sample. So for a home, for a farmer, it makes sense because they're going to go ahead and, and make money from, from their crops. They want to watch what they're putting into the soil. They don't want to put too much. They want to put the right things in. They don't want to overspend uh, on their inputs, on their budget, by adding stuff that's not needed. <clears throat> but if you, for a raised bed, for a home garden situation, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to have it analyzed every single year. Nobody's really going to go through that. Very few people are going to do it. And by the way, I did have a person one time who brought a sample in to me, and she went ahead <clears throat> and had uh, a, a soil testing laboratory look at it because she was really frustrated with it. And it had a lot of, the soil test report came back, I looked at it and it had a lot of organic material in it, but there were there was hardly anything in it for the plant to live off of. So I'd asked her what she was using as an amendment, and she said someone told her that uh, that coconut coir was uh, the amount that you used. Um, it didn't make any difference. You could use as much as you wanted. Well, the part that they forgot to mention was that it really does depend on the nutrient analysis of that soil, too. What nutrients are in that soil, not just the uh, physical amendments. So when you're adding amendments to the soil, you're doing it for two things. You're either trying to improve the structure of the soil in some way. In other words, the architecture of that soil and how it's put together, the the air spaces. Or you're trying to improve somehow the uh, nutrients that are available to plants. Or in some cases, you're gonna do that with both. Usually the best compost to use are the ones that you make at home. Um, I'd like to see those composts with raised temperatures. I, I call them, sometimes they're cool compost and sometimes they're hot compost. I like to see it hot. <clears throat> I like to see that temperature 
of that compost hit to about 165 before it's turned. And some people will just put together a compost pile and they'll turn it and never it generates that temperature. It'll disintegrate. It will change over time. It takes a longer period of time, but it will it will change. And that's what I call cool composting. It doesn't really disinfect the soil as it would with a hot compost mix. The hot compost mix, when it, those temperatures get up to 165, it uh, kills all of those potential uh, health risk microbiology that might be in the soil. As long as this compost is added, and it's a good compost, then you're going to uh, alter it by both in, in its structure and you and also in its nutrient content. You don't want to add so much organic material to a soil, to a raised bed, that it's just fluffier than heck. When you're done, if it's going to grow decent vegetables, you should be able to slip a, a garden trowel into it fairly easily, or when you walk across it, your feet shouldn't sink more than about a half an inch into that soil if you're going to start from seeds or transplants. If you're using a good compost, you don't have to worry about the nutrient content. The other, uh, the other side of this question could be about some of the other components that are out there, such as worm castings, perlite, vermiculite, uh, those kinds of things. And it really depends what you're going to be using it for. So, for instance, I just got, uh, was just talking to uh, someone recently that has a couple of commercial greenhouses. And, <clears throat> and of course, I assume that they're going to be concerned about weight. And if that's the case, then we use some of the lightweight mixes. They might be using a 1-1-1 mix, and that is one part uh, compost, one part peat moss, and one part vermiculite to make their own mix because they're they're worried about weight. If you're not worried about weight, if weight is not a consideration and, and mostly isn't in these soil mixes that are used for raised beds, then a normal soil mix such as the tomato lady that Viragro has or or rejuvenate or one of those that has about 70% sand in it will work just fine. It just needs to be that compost needs to be renewed once a year on a small amount, or at least every two years, uh, about a one-inch layer every two years, to get the right nutrient content in it. Uh, there are things that are added to it, like rock dust. If the soil has been depleted over a long time, you've been growing a lot of things, yeah, there could be some things that are missing in it, that rock dust, and a very small amount of rock dust. Maybe in a raised bed that's four by eight, you might need one pound, if that, even a half a pound of rock dust in it, mixed in thoroughly, spread over the surface and mixed in at the same time that you're mixing some compost. It doesn't replace what the compost does. Uh, in some cases it can, <clears throat> but in most cases it doesn't. So adding that rock dust might be, some ben might be beneficial in some cases along with a compost uh, in it as well. It just depends on the level of quality of the compost, and the rock dust just contains so much, so many. The one that used up at Virago is uh, one called Kelzyme, and it's uh, mined out of Nevada, and it's an old sea kelp bed that's been fossilized, and it just carries a lot of stuff in it. And uh, you can go to their website and look at what's in the components of that Kelzyme, K-E-L-Z-Y-M-E, and see what's in it, a lot of stuff. So in some cases, 
uh, there might be something missing from it. But basically, a good a good compost should smell foresty. It should smell like it was it's been in a forest. The 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 Viragro compost, the 166 compost up at um, up at uh, Viragro in North Las Vegas, Nevada, it has uh, it's made from municipal solid waste, and it's really got it's loaded full of non nutrients in it. In fact, it's so much. I've talked to them about decreasing it a little bit, but so in that particular case, it's very very rich, extremely rich with it, and it's so rich. In fact, when you smell it, you'll you'll smell a very small amount of ammonia coming and that's because there's so much nitrogen in it it's some of it's being lost by a gas so anyway <clears throat> a good quality compost that you need to be should be dark in color that that needed to, to be added to the to the so raised soil bed it should be fine textured it should smell like a forest uh, you shouldn't smell any off uh, off uh, like rotten eggs off smells um, it should it should smell clean so it just depends on what you're using your soil mix for are you gonna, you're gonna have to move it around then you need something lightweight if you if it's gonna sit in one location then it's something that is going to be fairly heavy and that'll hold water and help hold nutrients a lot longer than some of the lightweight soil mixes that have peat moss and perlite and vermiculite in them there are special reasons for adding those but generally you don't need to add them unless you have some reason to add them then go ahead and add them let's uh, handle the third question i have a desert museum palo verde and a crepe myrtle planted in the fall of 2012 so seven eight years old the palo verde has grown well but the crepe myrtle hasn't grown much in seven years the roots of the Palo Verde are now lifting a stone ring I built around it. Can those roots be cut out? <clears throat> well, first of all, let's back up a little bit. Why aren't these two trees growing really well? And I would contend the reason is the Palo Verde is native to the desert southwest, while the crepe myrtle is not. It's not even, it's, it's desert, what we would consider desert adapted but it's got to be watered, it's got to be pampered, it's got to be taken care of a lot more than <clears throat> the Palo Verde, the Desert Museum Palo Verde. Desert Museum Palo Verde is a beautiful shade tree, and it's uh, of the desert southwest. It's a, a very nice, very nice. Crepe myrtles are beautiful too, but you've got to separate. You've got to handle these two trees differently. The Palo Verde can handle poor growing conditions, poor soils, our desert, while the crepe myrtle, it it can't. We've got to pamper it more. The hole has to be bigger when it bigger when it's planted. The soil should be amended more. It's going to require more frequent irrigations than the Desert Museum Palo Verde will. There's just a whole host of things. So if we're going to irrigate, if we're going to handle these two trees, they've got to be handled differently. They've got to be watered differently. That means they should be on separate irrigation valves. The holes should be prepared ahead of time. In other words, if you're bringing in a 15-gallon or 24-inch box, then that hole has to be dug three times the size of that container or that box. If it's not, and it doesn't have to be dug deep, just deep enough for it to grow because the majority of the roots are going to be growing towards the surface of the soil. If we want that Palo Verde to grow deeper, 
we want the roots to grow deeper, then we've got to water it longer and then hold off. Let that upper soil begin to dry out and let the deep roots begin to chase it. But if they're watered both the same, if the crepe myrtle tree is dictating the watering of the Desert Museum Palo Verde, then yeah, you're going to see surface roots. You're going to see large roots up towards the, towards the top. These have to be irrigated and treated differently because they are plants from different, different climates. <clears throat> One is from a desert climate, the museum, desert museum. The other is not. It is desert adapted, but it's going to require more soil preparation. And I would say this, I would put that three to four inches of wood chip mulch on top of the crepe myrtle. Uh, the, the Desert Museum, the Palo Verdes, don't require it. You can cover them with rock pretty much. They're going to be fine. I would still suggest uh, amending the soil at the time of planting and digging that hole three times wider than the container. But still, you're, you're not going, it's not going to get in trouble. It's not going to show the same problems when the when the organics start to run out. But if you cover that crepe myrtle, the soil around that crepe myrtle with rock, after four or five years, when that, or, those, that organics that was used at the time of planting begin to run out, that's, it's gonna suffer. It's gonna start turning yellow. It's not gonna grow very well. It's gonna have all sorts of problems. So keep in mind, when we have plants and they're very different from each other, we've gotta treat them differently. The crepe myrtle has to be pampered. The Palo Verde does not have to be pampered. So keep it moist. The Palo Verde, long, deep irrigations. The crepe myrtle, much more frequent irrigations. And uh, it doesn't have to be as deep as well. So can you remove the roots <clears throat> around the Palo Verde if it's starting to lift this ring? Well, uh, you really run some risk when you start removing roots. I really don't know how to tell you, don't know if you can do that or not. It really requires a qualified arborist to go in and make that determination. Can you remove one large root? Probably, as long as there are other roots that can still support it. But whenever you're removing roots, cutting them, you want to make sure that whatever instrument is being used to being used for cutting the roots is sanitized, it's sterile and sharp. It should be a clean cut. Then let it heal over for a day or two before you begin to bury it again. Because there are about five disease organisms in the soils that can be transferred to the trees. So you don't want to make a fresh cut. Then go ahead and put against that fresh cut dirt. Would you, if you had, if you had a, a something, a sore, something that was bleeding, and you just had a fresh cut, would you pack dirt around it? No. Would you pack dirt around a tree that's been cut, the roots have been cut? No, you don't. You want to let them go ahead and heal over for a time being before that soil is packed around it again. It's just common sense. It's been cut, it's healing, it needs to heal a little bit first before putting the roots back. If it were me, I would eliminate the ring and I would do a little bit of re-landscaping around that Palo Verde. I would be putting a few plants that are desert, are desert types of plants that require similar types 
of irrigations, deep infrequent irrigations. You certainly don't want to put plants around that that require more frequent irrigation. That's going to shove those roots up towards the surface again and you're going to have problems. So uh, check with somebody, get a qualified arborist in there to make that determination before you cut the roots. And if the roots are then cut, any of them, make sure you sanitize, you clean the instrument, you make a clean cut, and you let it heal over for a while before packing dirt around it again and watering it again. Deep irrigations on any of those that are desert trees coming from the desert southwest. Okay, I think that ends it for me. I hear that music, so it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye. Learn more about desert horticulture on my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's all one word, extreme horticulture, and starting with an X. Take some of my classes on desert horticulture. Google or search for Bob Morris on Eventbrite.